In the English tradition, we've held on to the word film to designate really any feature that's screened or projected in a cinema, never having any truck with movies. The word is a hangover because really, what proportion of the films, scare quotes, you've ever seen have been projected on film stock, light passing through celluloid? Very few, I should think. It's a risk, rare, uncommon, difficult to screen. And it's with this in mind that the BFI has just capped off a four-day festival celebrating all things film, by which they mean 35mm prints, 16mm prints, projection booths return to their glory, and vitally... Nitrate. <clears throat> for the first time, yeah, and first time in 10 years, a screening of nitrate prints. We'll get to those. Today, we're here to discuss the ins and outs of the film on film festival, the light leaks and fuzz and grain and scratches, and yes, the vibrant pop of film, treacherous temperatures, a few pints of cider, shorts weather, as ever, a good time to disappear into the chthonic underbelly of NFT1, and there were hiccups, we'll get to those, nothing goes smoothly in the world of unpredictable stock. Robin Baker, head creator of the BFI National Archive, is bullish for this medium, explaining in the show notes how print can feel more relatable, more unpredictable. But what's pearlescent and strange and lustrous to us was really the norm for generations of spectators, right back to the mm. tents and audience and cinematechs that at the turn of the last century would screen all the latest from Parthay and Gamont. A few soutons rattling in your pocket, straw hat pulled to a jaunty angle, or a flat cap, I suppose, a little melee in the afternoon. What's rare to us, to me, was ordinary to cinema goes 70 years ago, 100 years ago. You know, in London at least, it's quite normal to walk down a high street, any high street, and see the unmistakable envelopes of these old modernist cinemas, frequently converted now into gospel churches. And there's a not insignificant correlation between projected light and enthusiastic religion, in my opinion. I think of Jean-Louis Scheffer, the French film philosopher, who spoke to the inchoate, sublime experience of watching a film, and he wasn't talking about DVD, no how it addresses itself to our interior history, to an invisible chamber within us, an unexpressed part of ourselves, beyond our actual consciousness. Highfalutin words, perhaps, but is there something there in the grain, the pooling of trapped light released before our eyes? Did you feel holy, Ralph? Yes, frequently, actually. Mm. Um, so the BFI Film on Film Festival is a new venture for the BFI. Inaugural, yeah. It's the inaugural BFI Film on Film event. Um, I don't think it will run at the exact same time next year, but there has been quite a lot of positive feedback, and so I think mm. there is a plan to... Make this a regular feature, not a bug. Yeah, to do it again. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because film is not completely dead uh, in terms of... It's, exhibition in london at least um and there are there are various kind of clubs and uh, nights in various cinemas across the uk that show 16 mil and 35 mil um prints of films but it's very, very much the domain of the you know the hobbyist and the, in the nicest way possible i'm speaking as well myself the neek you know the it, it, it's not the predominant mode that people consume film in the uk is 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 digital yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. most people wouldn't have seen a, a film print but also the predominant mode in which people consume film <laughs> is that they watch Marvel films. You know, I mean, I think, yeah. I think if I think if you 
like the Prince Charles cinema, for instance. I've been going to the Prince Charles cinema quite a lot for some reason in the last two months. I've seen several things there and most of them have been on film. Yeah, That's not, not most of the stuff they show is on film, but most of the stuff I go to there, I go to see on film because they just have a really good celluloid program. They're doing John Cassavetes at the moment. They're showing all his stuff in film. Um, yeah. And uh, and it is special. I saw Love Streams on film. It, oh, it was dear. one of my favorite films. Uh, and it was a particularly good print. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, there are various uh, places you can go to hear someone effuse about the, the beautiful kind of grain and the flicker and all these sorts of things. Um, it's still quite a common experience, but also, you know, I, I go to at the BFI sometimes they'll show a film print and I won't really enjoy it that much because it's a really dusty, dirty yeah, print. Yeah, the, the thing that people kind of valorize and romanticize about film, the flicker and the grain, is sometimes, you know, those, those things aren't inherent to film per se. Like, the, you know, to see a film in, you know, you really want to see everything in as good quality as possible. Mm. You know, I saw um, Godard's, did I see Passion? Um, God, I was passion like at the beginning of the yeah, year. Yeah, at the Institut Francais. Yeah, yeah. Institut Francais. And the thing with that one was it, it was a, b a bad quality print anyway. And what it meant is the entire color grade shifts with, with badly badly <laughs> stocked print to a kind of pinky, pinky mm. red. It kind of oxidizes towards pinky red. And it means the, and that's, that's a very visually beautiful, striking film. Um, and you watch it, all of these very rich Baroque colors kind of, uh, smeared into sort of uh, taramasolata <laughs> pink, a little bit like the colour of your shirt, Ralph. Is, Thank is, you. you know, yeah. From Cos. Um, yeah, um, so it's a nice shirt. Uh, and, you know, it was salmon, I think. Salmon but yeah, yeah. taramasolata kind of hits it. Yeah, yeah and it's a, so you're watching a film, you're like, yeah, it's on, it's on great. It's, you know, it's on film, that's nice, it's special. But, you know, you're actually losing a lot of the vibrancy and, and colour that you, know, you actually think in that moment, I'd rather be watching this on digital because the transfer would be nicer. Yeah, I think this is a good point to kind of uh, um, allude to the fact that we uh, have changed the name of our podcast. Oh, yeah, we should um, mention that. This we? will be the first podcast In uh, made uh, under our new name, Return to Form. It's for tax reasons. <laughs> so we basically uh, started our podcast. This is we're going to run through this very quickly because it might not be interesting to everyone. But we, we started our podcast in, in lockdown. Uh, we, we had to quickly come up with a name and a, and a sort of uh, a discipline of a constraint, which was that we were going to only review films on Mubi. We called it MoobTube. Um, and it was spelt in this way with two U's that didn't really make any sense. You know, it, it, it became a funny meme. But as we did the podcast, expanded to reviewing all kinds of films and all kinds of directors, um, we sort of honed in on a particular quality of the way we talk about films, which I think differs from a lot of the other film podcasts and film critics out there. We are particularly, and we because we are filmmakers, we are particularly interested in the construction of film and form, basically looking at films through the way that they're, the formal techniques that they use, the innovations they use. And I, and so BFI Film on Film Festival was... Um, Gloria, even though I'm not a film purist, and uh, you know, as I said, you know, a, a, a mushy, dirty print, um, it, you know, is not always preferable, you know, in the face of a really pristine 4, 4K DCP. You know, I think quality yeah. for me is of prime importance, but certain films really lend themselves to the uh, the kind of uh, often kind of rickety vibrancy, the depth of color. The fact that the contrast is just a bit more uh, pronounced, real, pronounced yeah. and real, 
Um, we'll get onto nitrate in a second, but um, but yeah, this there is there are certain qualities to film that, um, but particularly a quality of um, this film festival is that we were all suddenly, finally, after um, seven years, uh, it feels like, mm-hmm. <laughs> of uh, the culture industry focusing uh, intensively on content. We were focusing on form, undeniably. We were focusing on form, unavoidably. Um, but yeah, let's run through quickly what we saw. So opening, we, we didn't see everything. There were lots of workshops we didn't go to. We lots saw of them screenings sort of ambiently humming along in the background. We, we yeah. caught a, a, I think, a, a corridor screening of Metropolis, which was quite nice on... Um, like 16 minutes. 16 yeah, yeah, there were really lots of really exciting things going on and lots yeah. of people on Twitter have reported all the various... Um, this is not a puff piece for the BFI, as you'll see in a moment. But uh, but uh, we uh, but we yeah, joke, we, joke. we 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 did have a great time, and we thought we it was a fantastic thing for them to do. Um, but yes, we so we went to the opening night, uh, which was uh, by by the BFI's own admission a disappointment um, because they were supposed to screen uh, a nitrate print of Mildred Pierce, not a film that I think I would have paid to see on regular 35 uh which it ended up being shown on not nitrate they had an error with the nitrate projector the challenges obviously presented by by nitrate film projection are you know manifold i think Mm. that's so there's, there's a degree of understanding i mean that's the thing so um as robin uh explained on the introduction um when he when he sort of explained the situation there are perishingly few vanishingly few uh, nitrate prints that are suitable for screening um one of the qualities of nitrate film is that it's very subject to shrinkage most nitrate films are at least 70 years old you know the oldest nitrate films are 120 130 years old if they've been improperly stored at any point in their history they degrade and it basically means that they will froth and they will shrink um as soon as that begins to happen to a nitrate print, they're pretty much unrecoverable. So a nitrate film already needs to be close to pristine and kind of, you know, the four stages of nitrate print disintegration, as soon as it gets to like stage two, it's fucked and you can't screen it because the, the chance of it just combusting are um, enormous. And they said they had 80 nitrate prints in, in their, their archives. archives and they only deemed eight of them. Mm. to be suitable, suitable for screening. I, I, I imagine and they only screened four, four. that was the kind of curatorial decision there. yeah I imagine I that's a lot of that has to do with you know probably just the the kind of potluck of what survived so you know because everything was on you know the BFI BFI archive is a you know clearinghouse for everything it'll probably be quite humdrum verite films it will be instructional films it would be educational mm. films you know which wouldn't have been suitable so imagine from the available feature dramas that they could possibly have screened mm-hmm. at the opening night i suppose something like mildred pierce would have been the uh you know it's a uh, well executed uh quite you know quite quite beautifully shot so i suppose it's more it's you know it's slim pickings basically when you when you go into the world of nitro if you're doing 30 you know if you're doing safety safety film and you're doing 35 prints you can pretty much choose anything under god's earth under god's sun i suppose yeah anything that was shot on film and and released before uh yeah before tcps um yeah i you were listing the films that we saw. So then yeah. we so then um, on Saturday we went to the experimental program. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I'll just list them through and then we'll start at the beginning. Yeah. Um, 
on Saturday we went to the experimental program, which was called um, mul- expanded, expanded cinema, cinema and multi projection. Yeah, uh, uh, programmed by Will Fowler, which was um, it was just great to see the, the experimental department of BFI represented and and to have. Mm. Uh, it was actually only three multi projection uh, films that were projected live, including um, Threshold by Malcolm McGuire, which was. I think in my book, the only truly expanded cinema piece because it involved like live mixing live. Yeah. A live sort of uh, variable. Um, and then on Sunday we saw blood and sand. Um, by Ruben Mamoulian. By Ruben Mamoulian on nitrate, which was mm. a very special experience. We'll get to that. Um, another thing we will touch on as well, it was Casa del Angel. Um, House of the Angel. House of the Angel by Leopold Nilsson. Is that his name? Uh, yeah, Leopold uh, Torre Nilsson. Yes. The, so an Argentine <laughs> filmmaker, not, not a Scandinavian filmmaker. So we're in the funny um, position of, of not being able to make that screening because it was... Sold uh, out. It was A, sold out, and B, we would... We'd, um, we have jobs <laughs> so we couldn't make it but um but uh but yes um so we both watched like a dingy file of that um film yeah uh which was uh because uh it's a great film uh, it turns out but yeah, we um, we'll, we, come, we'll come to that we missed on from but, but i feel it, like it, spiritually it's part of the program so we can talk yeah about, it know, gives us yeah. an insight into some of the curatorial choices because mm. as i say film is quite easy to see in london but when you ha- when you're programming a festival, you have the opportunity to pick certain things, certain things that happen to be in the BFI National Archive, but yeah. also certain things which happen to uh, enunciate the qualities of film as a medium. Um, let's start. Let's begin at the beginning. The opening night, apart from all the various apologies with regards <laughs> to nitrate, there was something that they were unapologetic about. Um, which was Mark Jenkins' uh, specially commissioned short, <laughs> a dog called Discord. Uh, we've we've done we've covered Mark Jenkins in our review of Ennis Main. Um, you know he he is a colossal disappointment in as far as his first film was fantastic. His first feature, Bait, was fan- was absolutely yep. excellent and very deeply invigorating. Uh, deserved all its plaudits. Um, and his second film, Ennis Main, was was. Um, pathetic i mean he's made he's made things around that he's made shorts he's made uh, broncos house which is 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 exists within the same kind of reach of wheelhouse as um as as bait um and i think so he'd, he'd been commissioned by the bfi to make a film with the brief that it had to be shot on film that is this thing mm-hmm. um and that it would in some ways celebrate uh a film itself and it's it's the texturality and the materiality of film and it would kind of reflect on his own um his own kind of uh, indoctrination into the world of celluloid and film um indoctrination I yeah. do you mean to use such a strong word yeah I absolutely do mean it <laughs> but, i mean that's the thing because uh, you know as, as much as i i'm a proponent and lover of film and i think it's very special and magical i don't necessarily think that there is much to be gained by um, I mean, come to this later, but you know, sort of uh, tying yourself to the mast of film mm. uh, is quite anachronistic. It, it implies that you can't experiment with digital, and it implies that you. It is basically the implication is that digital is boring and flat. It often is, but that's because people film unimaginatively with digital, and there's so many ways in which you can fuck with yeah. digital, and you can, you know, achieve texture and grain. Um, you know, and there's so many modalities of digital. You know, we recently did an episode on mini DV, which is a digital format, which is ripe for 
um, experimentation. One of our greatest episodes. We highly recommend yeah. the listeners return to that. Absolutely, and I, I think that, you know these episodes will share something spiritual with that because I think. But, but anyway, so he'd made his film. <laughs> he was commissioned to do a, a, what, a three-minute film, a four-minute film. I think they were trying to be kind on their budget and he um, or his budget, and he turns up with a twenty-two-minute film. Which oh, I really? found, yeah, was which it I, meant to be four minutes? Yeah, that's oh. that's what he said. So, uh, and it was this again, just this very kind of art school A level. Um, it was like foundation year filmmaking in a way, which was very kind of locked into this kind of packed lunchbox. Uh, George Orwell, Vickers on Bicycles mm. idea of like England um, and it was very tawdry very well and very very unimaginative and had this really dire kind of quite bait as it were mm. um, voiceover um, which seemed to mostly reflect on Mark Jenkin um, and not on Yes, film. he's no Paul Schofield, is he? His, no. his voice, his voiceover it doesn't, it doesn't kind of... Um, it's not imbued with any sense of mystery, is it? It doesn't no. quite have that quality. It's like you're being, it's like a, a bus conductor is telling you that you, you know, you're kind of, uh, if bus conductors still exist. No, it's like a train conductor asking for your ticket. That's yeah, what it yeah, feels yeah. like. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I think Mark Jenkins absolutely deserves to have some role within, within a film. On I wasn't sure festival. how that sentence was going to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, because he, you know, because Bait was, I think, a rare example of a contemporary film made on a film that absolutely should be made on film. I think at the moment yeah. we have... It earned its chops. At the moment, you know, Succession, for instance, was shot on film totally unnecessarily. There are various people who, I think, use it as a, just a form of elitist... Uh, Wait, Succession was shot on film? Yeah, yeah. Was it? Totally unnecessary. Yeah, exactly. That's what everyone says when what I say this. What an insane waste of money. Everyone could have been shot on digital. Exactly. It should, could have shot on Ari. But um, it proves exactly the point we were making on our TV podcast. Um, quoting Pedro Costa, uh, Pedro Costa's statement about mm. about Ari Alexis and about the fact that you know it used to be you had this huge freedom with digital, you could just pick this thing up, you could get it from Argos, you could go and just shoot your mates and make a feature film and you're done. Um, and now there's a form of gatekeeping that's returned, where it's you need to have all these assistants and extra people on set to kind of make it work. Yeah. Um, and therefore you may as well shoot on film so prestige people who like HBO who want to feel a bit above the uh, um, but it, isn't it the, so funny the, that for, for, for so many years film. people were shooting on digital trying to make it look like film and here are people shooting on film fundamentally trying to make it look like digital exactly yeah no, it, the camera know. work the, it's true the camera work in succession is most reminiscent of like the thick of it which was yeah. like a, a classic <laughs> kind British of sitcom British TV <laughs> digital the early digital era kind of um, mm. like mockumentary camcorder vernacular. Um, so yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, and, uh, and you know, because it's not grainy. It doesn't look like, uh, you know, Albert Maisel's or something. It doesn't have that kind of like... No, uh, no, no, it was shot with this, this in this kind of shaky cam um, shoot from the hip style, which again is reminiscent of digital. I mean, anyway, we don't, we're not here to review um, Succession, but that does surprise me. But, that, but that's what I mean about, about film's role right now is is it's sort of a bit of a luxury item but i i i i thought very um i thought very highly of mark jenkin for his decision to film bait absolutely us using this 16 millimeter technique uh developing with coffee or whatever and make, using making this the extreme grain texture that he created and using post-sync sound as well yeah. um and you know basically choosing to dub it which creates kind of alienating brechtian alienation yeah, yeah. effect really which is what he was trying to 
communicate with these clashing of worlds in in bait between the the modern down from London and the kind of uh, um, the resentment between of, of local fishermen and I think, you know, in 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 this Cornish town. I think what it also lends is like particularly when you see something just shot with the sea and the coastline is the film's ability to merge and blur distance. And mm. I think, you know, it's something that really picks up well. It comes back to like Jean Epstein or something. You know, you've got an amazing ability of film to to be an abstraction in a way. It's an abstraction from reality. And that's, you know, again, when you see something like Succession, you know, everything mm. is in perfect focus when yeah. it needs to be in perfect focus. It's, yeah, none of the qualities of film are being utilized. Complete waste. Shocking because I think film, film, film is ultimately, yeah. um, a dis film in 2023, using film, uh, in 2023 is ultimately distancing it ultimately you know especially these little color shots that um in mark jenkins film which is now being made available free on the bfi player if anyone wants to subject themselves to it um you know these shots of the of the interior of the bfi the foyer of the bfi you know it, it's immediately distancing because because we now have the ability to go to the BFI and just shoot something on our iPhone, mm. you know, which feels much more immediate and quotidian. Film, the grain of film being applied, it, you know, it has the same effect as something that's had a film effect put on it because yeah. it is novel. It's weird. It's strange. It is distancing. And that, that distance, and I'm, I'm, that's not to denigrate film, but, you know... The, the era that the quality of the image it's like Hito Steele's poor image right yeah, the quality yeah. of the image does have this it does have a historical it does put a historic uh, historical landmark on uh, uh, a on time a stamp on, on a piece of media exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think using film in 2023 you are creating a distancing effect and that but that you have to know that you're doing that or it has to serve the thing I don't see it. much benefit in shooting the corridors of the BFI in film but no. I do see great benefit in shooting a, you know, a landscape with great depth um, on film. You know, then you can begin to pick up the its qualities for abstraction, its its painterly qualities, which you know maybe something that Michael Snow reached with Regent Central, you know, in nineteen seventy one, where a landscape is begins to break apart under mm. film you know these great great horizons and distances but yeah so that, that that's that's so we were subjected that's to this our film. assessment of that's mark a, jenkin and, i just and think it was a it was a parallel exercise and because he's like the the scion of film in film you know shooting on film in the uk he's a go-to person there's no one really else because well, everyone he's else the producing. mascot of formalism at the moment it's yeah. it's a bit uh, it's, a, it's a zombie formalism but uh, you know but but he basically um he'd found this footage of his friend's dog and and he didn't know what he didn't know whether it developed properly or not. No, he didn't. Know, it, he so he didn't know the dog. So he found a bit of film that his friend gave him, uh, okay. and the dog belonged to someone else or something. I don't know. But he managed to track down the person whose dog it was. By yeah. which point, their dog had died, and he showed them the footage, and they were like, "Oh my god, my dog is alive in this footage." It was just like it was like that Joy Orbison album. People <laughs> going, "Oh yeah, he going to the shops." It was just so um, yeah so inconsequential i'm afraid to say but nevertheless Moving on. so that evening we we were not uh, best pleased because we didn't see nitrate and we did see something we didn't like um mildred pierce was fine but um i wouldn't have chosen to see it i mean let's talk about so I, I think, then on saturday no no should we, should we talk about mildred pierce briefly let's talk about mildred pierce because i think it's important it, it represents a kind of high watermark of hollywood studio melodrama um I think it was interesting because I was reading the uh, the 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 um, Brady uh, biography of Wells recently. Uh -huh. Austin Wells, yeah, yeah, Austin Wells, and yeah, not Charlotte Wells. 
Um, and it, it's someone written a biography. The director of After already, Sun already. already. Um, um, and he, he remarks on you know films like Mildred Pierce being you know films like Citizen Kane making films like Mildred Pierce possible. Mm. Um, and I think you know there is a certain Wellesianism to it. This this kind of noirish. Uh, uh, kind of like uh, yeah, it's like well lit and like you know well has lit, some good composition yeah. yeah uses some depth of field that's interesting and has often quite uh, disjointed angles but the actual film itself is uh, a relatively actually quite confusing uh, rise and fall film of a, a restaurateur and uh, there there's some interesting lenses about gendered labour um, which I think uh, Michael Curtis was particularly interested in at that moment um, I think uh I was going to say Rita Hayworth, June Crawford, sorry, uh, is, is Joan Crawford. Yeah. Joan Crawford. Sorry, June Crawford, Joan Crawford, uh, is, you know, very compelling. It was, I think, I believe the only Oscar that she won in her career for playing Mildred Pierce. And she's very, very compelling. And it's, uh, it is what it is. It's a melodrama. I think there were some moments that were very beautiful. It was kind of quippily written when it needed to be. But you know, mm-hmm. as James King, you know, friend of the porn, as they say, um, was with us. You know, it was obviously a script that had been subject to uh, script doctors because you know the, the the moment most of it was in this kind of archly saccharine melodramatic order, and then you get these very quippy sections. Mm. Um, but there was some interesting camel work. Uh, but yeah, again, the letdown was that it was not on nitrate because of a failure of the fire suppression system in the mm-hmm. um in the uh in the actual uh in the projector itself um which is you know fine we'll get to we'll talk about nitrate in a minute but yeah so a film like mildred pierce what can we say about it is this it was it was pulpy in the sense that it kind of you felt the sense of of uh unearned manipulation i suppose it, it, it if we agree that mm. all art has an element of like making you feel things that you weren't already feeling um this these feelings that it sort of uh, attempted to kind of bring upon you mm. it just kind of like it was a bit of a kind of whodunit that sort of changed course in a in a way a that, few red herrings and that felt a bit like we were just being lit, like sort but of led I mean, this around is, like this a dog is my, this is Michael Curtis obviously so of, of Casablanca fame so it's not uh, yeah it's not the go to it's almost a b-side to mm. Casablanca to see I mean Maybe I would maybe I would have walked out if they started screening Casablanca because the, it's a film I've seen before. So. The 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 B side to Casablanca is to have and have not True. by Howard Hawks, yeah. which I saw on film at the BFI just before the film on festival, and it was very poorly attended. I might say it would have been very well attended had it been part of this festival. <laughs> I wonder why they screened they, they blew their load and then they're screening because they con- mm. they constantly screen stuff on thirty five. It's not unusual. But where was like the, the BFI did they screen any stuff Cirque? Did they screen any Cirque during um film or film? Any Cirque? Yeah. Douglas Cirque? Um, no. Huh. John Ford? No. So, they so mostly screened like kind of unusual, I wonder why. also ran Hollywood stuff. I wonder why that was. Because I mean, to watch like How Green Is My Valley or something or Stagecoach on, on film would have been like a joyous experience. Mm. And then to go for, I'm not, I'm not here to like does neg. get screened. And the, the important thing is it's the programming stuff choices that was per se, at the National Archive. So it's not like a lot of the stuff that gets screened is just like... They weren't hiring it, basically. It's just being yeah. hired from yeah. wherever, right? Some of that stuff has to come from across the pond, whatever. Um, anyway. Anyway. Um, then on... So, so that was Thursday. 
then on Friday, uh, we, we were both, uh, we hadn't booked a ticket and we <laughs> were both at work. So yeah. we couldn't catch the 6 p.m. screening of House of the Angel by Leopold Torres a- Nelson. Nelson. Yeah. Um, but we did watch a naughty file of it. Uh, it's also on oh. YouTube um, in very, very bad quality. <laughs> so we, were, quality. we felt extraordinary. We were green with envy. Uh, all the punters mm. who uh, managed to nab a ticket for that screening. Um, it's a it's a beautiful. It's a, it's a one hour and ten minute. Uh, so, kind yeah, of it's like seventy four minutes, which is Argentine a, thriller. Yeah, it has very much ahead of its time a kind of Alan Rene style, kind of essayistic tracking shots and voiceover memories sort of intro. Yeah, it's, 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 and then it settles into a kind of thriller vernacular, but the compositions are still like. Very deep, well composed, and kind of uh, Wellsian. In, in, in yeah, a but also way. with some some quite clever camera uses, the twisting of the camera mm. on zoom, or slow kind of twisting of the camera. Also, Dutch angles as well, actually. Yeah, and I think there was a great sense of chiaroscuro. Um, it kind of it's it, at his heart. It's a kind of political corruption thriller. Um, yeah. I think there's something about uh, House of the Angel which is quite surprising because I. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the first I've heard of it. I've I've been aware of the name Nelson for a while, um, and just haven't had, ever had the a, a, a raw. This is always why to distrust blurbs. You know, often you look stumble across the blurb in a year of a film. You're like, mm. oh, I'm pretty sure what this will be, um, but it is quite a remarkable film. And yeah, it has this kind of like, yeah, it has this Hiroshima more last year at Marienbad energy to its beginning, um, a sense of kind of decayed time that feels very familiar to like the Nouveau Roman in France, mm. you know, um, like Durat and, and Philippe Soler and people like that. There's a sense of Alan Robrier. Um, yeah, a sense of uncanny dreamlike, um, uh, soupy time, which the camera work really kind of bootstraps and aids in this mm-hmm. very, very magnetic and beautiful way. And it's a great story of kind of like, it's actually a kind of, it does a red herring really well in terms of its kind of uh, supposed kind of hero becoming an anti-hero, this kind mm. of dueling character, uh, a politician who falls from grace. Um, but it's done very artfully. It's done with a great deal of emotion and and psychological depth in a way that Mildred Pierce has none. Um, you know, and it's... it's and. I, I, yeah, which I think is just like a, a quality of, you know, um, House of the Angel feels like a film written by one person, whereas Mildred Pierce feels like a, you know, a film written by a studio. Yeah, um, yeah you know, so you lose that kind of that 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 kind of all-encompassing membrane of uh, psychological nuance, and it's yeah, quite great from it. Actually, quite surprising when you when you I won't spoil it for people because I think it's worth watching. But when you find out about the um, when you discover the uh, well, well, when this kind of reverse happens towards the end of the film, and there's a mo- particular moment that happens, it is quite un. It's quite surprising. I think mm-hmm. actually, it caught me. It caught me off guard. And I think it's very, yeah, very adept, very beautiful film. It's begging, it's gagging mm-hmm. on its knees for a um, a restoration and a great, a good transfer. And presumably, if there is a nitrate print of it, there will be thirty five prints of it in existence. And so, hopefully, at some point, someone will, you know, cough, cough. Martin Scorsese, World Cinema Project will. Uh, you know, dole out the money because I think this is very deserving. Yeah, maybe of, the BFI. I mean, you yeah. know, they could, they've got it in their archive. They could uh, they could rack it on. Yeah, I think also so. Blu-ray, maybe. Who yeah, but it was it was a complete. Just throwing it out there. Just throwing it out there. But we didn't, again, we didn't see it on film. We didn't see it as yeah, part of the festival. Yeah, but, but we, we know it would have been it. amazing on film. Yeah, and many so people good. we spoke to who were at that screening uh, were 
effusive about effusive his qualities. About his qualities exactly. Yeah. Um, moving on, on Saturday evening, this was when the heat started to really set in. Um, yes. We and, and we were uh, we were wandering over from the a picnic in the Barbican. Um, wandering over, we walked for forty fucking minutes. <laughs> 40, forty minutes in the in the sweating sun. Uh, we'd just been socialising with friend of the pod, Will Pimlot, uh, and his shout out to Will, shout out to Will and his and his many uh, uh, compañeros, and uh, and we uh, arrived at the beer fire. My dear friend Tash was was in a bit of a fluster because um, they were telling her that they wouldn't let anyone in, <laughs> and I shouted at her <laughs> because I was being harangued by my friend Tash about us not being able to let in and Owen insisted on going to get a cider from the bar which of course was totally fine completely in my, uh, um, my remit and, uh, and he managed to get in and the film didn't start for another five minutes anyway I accept your apology um, I am sorry <laughs> <laughs> I could tell you were stressed um, I could tell you were stressed and uh, but no it was it was fine we saw three very interesting films the third uh, was more than interesting it was profound um, mm. The first was called The Great Ice Cream Robbery, which was... Um, By James Scott. And it involved a Klaus Oldenburg exhibition at the Tate Britain. Yeah. Formerly just Tate. Um, and it was double screen work. So the first two films were double screen. The, the second film I'll just describe briefly, Chris Wellsby, uh, Wind Vane, which was two cameras in Hampstead Heath on the, where the tripod was loose and it was just kind of um, where, like moving with the wind. Uh, yeah, so right. it would be spinning uh, or or turning gently um, in response to the direction of the wind. So it might capture a tree. The composition meaning sometimes the composition would align in a way that would be perfect rule of thirds mm. by chance. Uh, and so there's actually something about it which is quite reminiscent. Again, sorry to keep mentioning Michael Snow and every no, fucking ten minutes. Central is very relevant. It is to this literally film. the region central, yeah. but the region Amsterdam. Um, yeah, I think yeah. Um, I, it was. For some reason, the Region Central, like, I guess because the compositions are often a bit closer, um, and the concept is so it's I, a more visually interesting. Yeah, because Hampstead Heath, you know, yeah, shot but, shot on quite blotchy film stock that is, was already. I think the quality of the, that particular print has already merged towards the reds quite a lot already. I must it's admit, I was annoyed. Print. I was annoyed that I didn't know that it, <laughs> even though it's called Wind Vane, I didn't know that that's why the cameras were moving left and right yeah it took and Emily, like, Emily mentioned that to me I was like oh that makes sense I felt yeah. like yeah we both found this out after the film we'd watched the film and I think at the time I was a bit like the, there was this lack of purpose to the compositions mm. which like irritated me and then when I discovered that there was this conceptual basis behind it I was like uh, okay maybe I would have yeah, like no, this is interesting maybe now, I would have like yeah. felt that but also maybe I maybe that's stupid and that like <laughs> doesn't actually because I, ultimately Le Rage Central isn't buttressed by the kind of like autonomous can uh, automaton conceit under which it was made. Yeah. Like aesthetically, it isn't buttressed by that. It's buttressed by like the balletic this, camera work, the balletic think, camera yeah. work, yeah. which is a result of a technique. But that technique, it's a bit like when people talk about AI art or whatever. Like, like it, a human still decided to make the camera do that weird thing, and therefore, like that's where its beauty comes from. Uh, whereas I felt like there was a little bit less variable, a little bit less of the human variable in this composition. But it was it's still a nice like exercise. It's very. It feels very. It was very filmmakers good. Corp. You yeah. know, it's just like oh, that's, that's nice. It was very that. good programming on, on behalf of the BFI mm. and on behalf of Will Fowler because 
it was like a beautiful illustration of a very simple and beautiful illustration of double camera of like dual channel 16 yeah. mil but i think i mean to go back to great um that's a great train robbery the great yeah, ice the cream robbery this, uh, this is james scott uh who is very still very much with us um uh you know english filmmaker he, uh, he's he knows has made a name for himself with artistic documentaries and he's made a documentary about um uh what the fuck david hockney there we go um uh about david hockney and he's mm -hmm. you know great so, noises he made there yeah i really did i was really my brain was buffering in the heat um so this film is is a portrait of Klaus Ottenberg, um about the show, about the preparation for the show, also about Oldenburg's methodology, I suppose. Um, so the actual, there's a bit of a red herring with the title of the film, The Great Ice Cream Robbery. Um, very briefly in the film, we see some sort of frenetic police activity. Mm. Bobby's basically doing something with an ice cream, a sort of ice cream stand, and it's kind of unclear exactly what's going on. Like either they've impounded the ice cream stand because they've mm. been selling ice creams illegally or um, because some sort of ice cream robbery has happened. And obviously Klaus Aldenberg's whole thing was exaggerating the material culture of, of uh, everyday life, pop culture, you know, like a, making a giant inflatable burger, this kind of thing. So I think there's a sense of using this particular slice of life, exaggerating it to the entire film and then kind mm. of ignoring it and then making the rest of the film about this portrait of Klaus Aldenberg. Maybe there are moments where this this dual channel works quite nicely you know there's moments of parallel editing between these shooting legs of women in the street and i can you know well imagine it's like you know oxford street or something i imagine you know sort of busy or carnaby street and then you've got this he's you know Aldenberg's obsessed with these smokestacks from factories and you've got this kind of nice parallelism between the smokestacks and the legs of his and his women. sculptures yeah and his sculptures there's yeah. also like footage of was it his hannah wilk his girlfriend kind of changing yeah. dresses in a in a in a, in a, in, a hedge. in a hedge or something was that his girlfriend i think so yeah klaus you old dog i might be i might be incorrect okay, but yeah. um yeah i mean just the male gaze on display in in quite a, a mm. beautifully uh, unleashed and uh un the great and unthreatening fashion robbery. <laughs> <laughs> like, exactly yeah um but yes no i enjoyed this i thought it was a bit baggy uh, yeah, in places like half an hour long so. um maybe if i'd known it was half long now long i would have like sort of uh, just like let myself go into it a bit but um I guess I looked over at the projectors, which was sort of almost like a Netflix progress bar in a way. I could, I could yeah. see the levels of celluloid going down on the, the, the first reel. That's interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was good. Um, I actually and, and full of and also interestingly because it because the two projectors were physically separate, which makes it different from a film like Vortex, for instance, which was this dual channel Gaspar Noe film about dementia, yeah. which is obviously digital. So you have absolute control over the synchronicity. Um, and, very, and the scenes are very often like shot in the same room. This was like two different bits of footage, sometimes in the same room, sometimes not sometimes on, sometimes off. And they were kind of talking to each other, but the way they were talking to each other was almost as if like a live band was there. There was like this, it's like a call and response. Yeah, there way, was a slight but, yeah. disconnect because the projectors were literally in the room projecting it uh, differently. And, yeah. the, and like I say, it wasn't totally like nothing. And actually was it's interesting you'd see you know, there's a moment where we have both cameras shooting in the same room and they're shooting during the, the build and assembly of this exhibition. And, mm -hmm. You know, Kazanbo's going up a ladder and trying to arrange um, one of his sculptures on the wall. And 
you can see, so you're seeing the same the same action from two cameras, uh, which are, you know, probably but it's slightly out of time, 10, mostly, 15 right? meters apart from each other, well, probably 10 meters apart from the top, sorry, five, 10 meters. And yes, yeah, so slightly out of time with each other. And you also appreciate the color difference. The lighting in that space mm. is the same. The colors in the room are the same. The people are the same. But you can appreciate then the slight difference in color quality of the two mm. stocks, the two reels you're seeing. Apart, you know, you think maybe that's down to one of them is better preserved than the other, or maybe one of them was shot on a slightly different stock, or maybe one mm. of them was shot on a slightly different camera. Um, and it, that moment invited lots of reflections about films materiality. I think mm. it was quite nice that. Yeah, that 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 was. An, I mean, there were lots of. Nice. I mean, I just love dual channel as a format. I, that's I, great. I, I mean, that's where I loved Warsex so much because we've made uh, dual channel films before, haven't you? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, th I find it to be exhilarating and underused as a technique yeah, because much. it basically gives you, the viewer this crazy agency where you sort of get to like choose what you concentrate on. Well, it's what Wells said about theatre. Mm. You know, there, there isn't a singular eye. There's a kind of you know multiple eyes and multiple exactly. lenses and angles on a on a scene. So you get to create two things at once well three things at once you get to create like film number one which is the film on the left film number two which is the film on the right and then film number three which is like this composition mm. that of the two that feels sometimes coincidentally and sometimes very deliberately yeah. um mm. you know uh juxtaposed like like uh but like they feel like part of each other sometimes yeah um so that that that, that, that was a very good aspect of that obviously less so with the chris Bosby film because there was that was sort of accidental although they were just in the same location so it's just yeah. a single concept thing um but let's talk now about a three channel work that was not only a three channel work it was also a piece of genuine expanded cinema performance by the great malcolm legrice malcolm legrice um this was actually performed by his son, Oliver Legrice. Yeah. Um, it was a, a piece called Threshold, which I think this was actually only the second time ever that it had been performed. The first time it had been performed many decades ago by uh, Legrice Jr. Know, so apparently there's a four screen version of this. Oh, really? Did okay. we see the three or four? There were three projectors. So yeah, so there's a four screen version okay. of this. So uh, with Threshold, it's uh, using film stock um, and it feels like what initially would be a flicker film or pulse film. So in in in, in the kind of Kubelka, Tony Conrad um, uh, trajectory of post mm. post post war avant garde filmmaking, um, overlapping boxes of color, um, and the element of mixology that happens is that these uh, these projections uh, sometimes overlap, so you get a kind of uh, raw superimposition. Sometimes they split apart. Um, and as we progress through the film, uh, an actual naturalistic scene is introduced. And the naturalistic scene is of, uh, I believe, like the doorway, like the entrance way into a, a nightclub or a, a restaurant with kind of men in coats. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're continually moving towards this entrance way. And then there's this kind of like graphic um, sort of series of concentric rings, pulsating concentric rings that are introduced. And what happens is the film reaches this this fever pitch where these layers are superimposed on each other, vibrating, pulsing, um, creating kind of strange um, formations and crystallizations over the top of each other as they kind of overlap and pulsate and it becomes very hypnotic. Mm -hmm. And you also obviously have the audio track as well. So as the tape is passing over the audio head, um, the tape head, sorry, 
you're getting bits of repetitious sound, these kind of and you get these interesting bits of uh, uh, dialogue that clip in, which we all interpreted as it was kind of like a blue dress, gold dress moment. Yanni Laurel style. Kind Yanni of Laurel, it kind of was. I thought it was saying it's mid. I thought it was saying Mizzy, referring to the TikTok yeah. uh, prankster. So Obviously, I didn't actually think that it was referring to No, that but that's how the year in, in interpreted time it. Travel. It shows our different outlooks on the world. Yeah, You're obsessed with Mizzy, I'm just going it's mid. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's extraordinary. It's a really extraordinary piece of film. We're watching it kind of now, obviously on a digital uh, single channel format. Um, Even the rhythm of those noises, yeah, which I think reflects the multi, the can multiple. Can the listeners hear this? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, even the mul- even these kind of weird jolts of sound, um, you know, you get the sense of these different things overlaying. But yeah, basically, what Legrice was doing, Legrice Junior, uh, he was directing the three project, the two projectionists and himself, to move these these squares or these Academy ratio uh, boxes of color around each other using the lens to kind of expand and contract the size of these of these uh these boxes um to to communicate to cellular almost it's like watching something under a microscope i suppose it looked very similar to the film on film that it wasn't the same as but it looks very similar to the bfi film on film uh branding yeah which involves these kind of three um, boxes it kind of reminds reminds you of like uh like owen land or someone like that, mm-hmm. you know, who used, who who actually used audio in a really interesting way because he would, uh, you know, you can you can uh, you can kind of sculpt on um, film stock in such a way that when it passes over the tape head, a particular mm-hmm. shape or image on the stock will register as a sound, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of what Owen Land did. And there's very interesting things you can do with that in terms of he did one with letters and numbers, if I remember properly. I can't remember. And they's all, they've always been performed kind of, uh, uh, you know, historically live. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it was a really transformative uh, filmic experience. It's a 17 minute long film, which has a kind of a beginning, a middle and an end, you know, which is kind of crescendo, this fever pitch. And I've actually just checked details. So the what I thought was a restaurant is actually border guards at a frontier post. Oh wow! Yeah, so I was way off. <laughs> um, but again, you know, you're seeing these kind of really blurry, fuzzy, quickly pulsating images. I feel like expanded cinema, or like experiments with experimental film and the materiality of film. Not just the materiality of film, but to update it to digital, which is like immaterial in a certain sense. The form of film just as an experience unfolding in time. Structural film, basically. Uh, you know, we don't... Like, these things don't... These events don't happen in London nearly enough. And I, I I just feel a bit nostalgic for like 10 years ago when I was 18 and I would uh, go to the BFI and there would it wouldn't be uncommon for like there to be a, a funny Malcolm LeGrice performance or something. Uh, and I feel like now that doesn't happen very often so it speaks to that kind of wider um uh kind of dearth of uh repertory uh screenings in the uk and uh places that will screen kind of avant-garde film we don't have an anthology film archives in in london well we do we have lux but they just um they choose not to screen formally interesting stuff anymore they choose to to screen stuff that um 
conformers conformers well not commercially but yeah. conformers to the um you know the the art world's current trends of of identity politics rather than yeah. really truly innovating in 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 form um, uh, well but there we are so, uh, we, so this, we, is so a, we, this is all a step in the right direction from the BFI. Yeah, it really is. We're really we, uh, bullish for this. So let's move on to the, before the um, Benadryl really kicks in, um, I've taken on a full sleep. Um, let's move on to the kind of final film, I suppose we saw as part of the screening, which is Ruben Mamoulian's Blood and Sand mm-hmm. um, from 1941. It is yeah. a Technicolor masterpiece in its own right. The crucial thing about it is it was also a, a successful nitrate uh, screening. Yes. Um, one so, of three that happened on Sunday. Yeah, one of three that happened on Sunday, so they really hit their stride. Um, whatever fire suppression issues were happening on, on uh, Thursday night were, you know, absolved. Um, mm-hmm. No one needs to commit spooky. We've, uh, <laughs> we've uh, you know, kind of managed to sidestep that. Uh, you know, and I think one of the amazing things about it is that I think the difference between this and uh, Mildred Pierce is that Mamoulian, unlike Curtis, Mamoulian was, you know, a true, uh, a visionary in a lot of ways, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and operating within the same kind of studio system. But I think Mamoulian had, was not tethered to, even though in a lot of senses this is, is a melodrama, is a romantic melodrama, but he understood the kind of nuance of that. Um, yeah, and, and also like the, the, the classical high point of Mamoulian's career was in the early 30s at yeah. the dawn of the talkies. He made Jekyll and Hyde, he made City Streets, he made, um, I can't remember the name of it, but that film set, which has love in the title, um, that's set in Paris, that has this, the funniest kind of sympathy, symphony oh, at the start, it was a musical. Um, you know, so he, Mamoulian, we, we talk in detail about him on our 1930s uh, podcast. Yeah. Our sort of talkies, of Advent of the Talkies podcast with uh, guest Eugene Kotrilenko. So please tune into that. Um, but yeah, Mamoulian was a was a real innovator and... Lo- love Me Tonight. Love Me Tonight, that's, that's it. That's a film um, from 1932. Yeah. Bl- Blood and Sand is, is no exception in a certain sense. I mean, there are... There's a great shot with like a fountain, like a, a romance with shot through a fountain in the foreground. You know, it's not, it's kind of, it reminded me a bit of East of Eden, right? It's like a kind of technicolor uh, wonder, you know, it, 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 it's kind of luxuriating in the color. It's a Sunday flick. And it's full of, yeah, and it's full of quite deep and powerful romance. The, there's a sort of moral lesson about how fame never lasts. You know, this mm. this, this the plot is about a kind of uh, bull bullfighting and about it's also a rise and fall. And you do, yeah. you know, in a way that the the modality and again to mention someone like, um, well, ev- even to mention Wells again and to mention Curtis again. These are all films happening in the 1940s about the sort of rise, uh, the the peak and the fall of a uh, figure. You know, be it a Newspaper man, be it a restaurateur or be it a bullfighter, which is the mm. case here, played by Tyrone Power. Um, and I think, you know, Tyrone Power is one of those funny characters because Tyrone Power is always Tyrone Power in a film. Um, I don't think I've ever seen Tyrone Power. He was in such a, like, he was, was he, for, he just shit like this. He, Tyrone Power was in a ro- <laughs> robe, robes. He was in a lot of like sword and sandals epics. Um, he looks a bit like Ben Shapiro. He does got a little bit like Ben Shapiro. <laughs> He, you know, had these kind of boyish good looks. He had this kind of uh, clean-cut American accent in a way that, you know, is obviously quite uh, unintentionally alienating, distancing Mm. in a film that's set in Spain when other characters are making their best efforts to sound sort of Spanish. They're sort of Mm. spanglishing themselves. (laughs) Um, I think 
Um, but you know, I, I actually to talk about how the look of the film it has an enormous sense of depth field. The nitrate, and again, I, I don't really have a point of reference because I haven't seen it on safety film, I haven't seen it on digital, and I kind of want and we to. And we also, neither of us have ever seen anything else on nitrate. No, so this is our one experience, but there was a, and again, is this a placebo effect? I don't know, but there was a real sense of lustrousness and pearlescence to the quality mm. of the film. And actually what I was expecting from a Technicolor stock, and the way you see Technicolor transferred is in this kind of really... Uh, Wizard of Oz, uber poppy, mm. almost poster paint style of color. And you actually mm. come to associate Technicolor with something that's quite, um, in a way, quite shallow. It's poppy, but shallow, very superficial. But actually, there were extraordinary depths. And I think the way I was thinking about it to myself afterwards was like, it's a difference between poster paint and oils. Mm. And this was a film shot in oil. Um, there are great darknesses about it. You know, so at the beginning of the film, our character our young Juan, uh, our young Juan Galado, our young kind of bullfighter is a, a kind of a spunky lad. Um, and he, uh, his father was a bull, famous bullfighter who was gored by a bull, fatally died. And he wants to go into the same thing. And he has a very despairing mother. You know, he's like, doesn't want uh, young Mizzy to go outside and play with the bulls. Um, and he's got this great sense of kind of like, you know, energy and cheeky charm. Yeah. Um, and there's a great scene where he kind of runs off in the night and goes to fight a bull in this ring. Mm. And that moment is shot with such weird, almost unheimlich depth. Mm. Uh, as he's tussling this bull shot in this long shot, it's not shot close up because obviously no cameraman's going to go and sit in this bull ring uh, for love or money. Um, and it's shot in this kind of murky darkness, which is evocative of like Goya almost you know real yeah and this was guy was in fact a reference but so then again is it whether is it the nitrate or is it mamoulian's extraordinary visual mm. sensibility but like um goya was like a massive reference lots of spanish painters were but like he El was Greco, literally Velazquez. yeah, yeah. He, he was literally like painting cut shadows onto the set like mm. instead of having like actual shadows he was doing a bit like red like antonioni with red desert like he was doing these crazy things with the set design in order engineering to like it. engineer yeah. like a very uh, exactly as exactly as you say on heimlich experience um you you see there's certain scenes which again it kind of brings to mind like godard's passion where you see mm. scenes that it's painterly in its everyday shots but there are certain scenes which really feel like now you're looking at a kind yeah. of tableau vivant based on the painting, you know, particularly seen shot in churches and chapels, because mm -hmm. you can really use light in an extraordinary way mm. in those spaces in Churisco, um, particularly when the bullfighters are doing their kind of ritualistic pre-fight um, prayer session. Mm -hmm. And those scenes are shot with such magnificent sense of composition. They do look like fucking paintings when you see them. They are extraordinary soft. And there's a way in which, again, I don't know if this is a nitrate, I don't know if it's Mamoulian, but it felt like it was a nitrate these characters kind of, it's almost 3D, they kind of almost pop mm. out from the screen a little bit. This was, yeah, this was a comment that Kevin Brownlow made in, uh, it was a quote uh, from um, Science Sound, I think, but it was, it, was, it was used on the, in the nitrate publicity that BFI provided, yeah. uh, where he said he was at some screening where they switched from uh, like a, a duplicate a 35 safety um, film to, nit to original nitrate. Uh, and he, he said it was like, night and day you know stereoscopic. i can actually i think i sent you that quote didn't I? I think yeah, i can actually read it so so yeah it's kevin brownlow saying a legend of film yeah. preservation and he's saying i remember at the national film theater showing a film uh, showing a dim 16 millimeter dupe 
of a Colleen Moore comedy called or- Orchids and Ermine from 1927. It was a usual thing that the laboratory subjected us to in the 1960s. Then the projectionist switched over to the same scene in original Nitro. The audience gasped. The difference was indeed breathtaking. The 16mm barely registered. The 35mm looked stereoscopic. You felt like you could walk into it. And I think that does explain what you feel like with these films, like the, the sense of actual kind of real physical depth to them that at once feels so real and so hyper real as to be fake at the same time is extraordinary. And I think, you know, Blood and Sand even, which is like, you know, it's like watching Ben-Hur or something. It's just, you know, it's a perfectly jolly romp um, in a lot of ways. It plays itself, you know, it's funny, it's sad, it's exciting um, in all the perfect ways. You know, it's, it's a, in a lot of ways, it's, like, it's what kind of like Hollywood films should be doing, striving for now. You know, Hollywood's done it before. It's, you know, it's a populist film that is actually also a work of art. It um, was funny to me, like, because I suppose it did slightly... Re- remind me of seeing films on 3d Mm. but the problem with films on 3d is that they're so you're wearing the glasses and they're so dim so there's none of the brightness um but like as a yeah so to to, to describe to listeners most of whom probably won't have ever experienced nitrate cinema film because it's such a rare experience um and you know we experienced it in this very um you know, we nearly didn't experience it at all. <laughs> Had the projector not, we could have fixed. died, listeners, uh, as or we well, could have just know. died and yeah. taken the experience to our graves. But um, yeah, the the um, the quality there is a certain depth. You sort of feel like you could move around what's being projected to you. Yeah. But obviously, just as with three D uh, cinema, you can't move. And there were actually some three D thirty five mil screenings which. I wasn't really moved to to book tickets for, but it would have been interesting to just sample that as a, um, as a, as a technique, but nitrate certainly has a kind of a a 3d quality, certainly much has much greater depth than, um, than regular 35. And I think it's something to do with the way that the highlights jump out. So when there is kind of sunlight in a scene or a fire uh, or a fire, it does just like shimmer that little bit more. There's this, Maybe it's a bit like OLED or something like like mm. that level of contrast where the blacks they're not totally black in the way that OLED is like they're not like it's yeah, not a completely kind of grayish grayish yeah it's not completely and, zero to yeah. one ratio but like there is um there is like a real shimmering and something a bit silvery as well it's quite unusual like it's not it's not necessarily the experience I would want for every film that I watch no. um obviously not like digital films that would be kind of, well that could be kind of interesting to watch like a digital film transferred to nitro i wonder if it would have the same i wonder i mean because you're not working i mean the, the obvious is you know the depth is of that, field is different isn't it yeah and i think the obvious thing is that like you know a lot of this film was mostly shot in interior locations mm. I, I wonder what nitro it's very would controlled look, yeah yeah i wonder what nitro would look like with a landscape and exterior there were certain scenes that were shot in mexico city which are outside and you can kind of tell these scenes but they're very few and far between the vast majority were shot interiors on these sound stages uh, again, you know, you talk, you mentioned like the silver, you know, silver nitrate. I think people say that's what adds this kind of this 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 sparkle to mm-hmm. the certain highlights and contrasts. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe that maybe that's what it is. You know, obviously there is also a real sense of like beautiful ugliness to it. You know, when you see uh, Rita Hayworth's face 
Sorry about all the noise. If people can hear kids playing outside, that's yeah. because they are. We apologise for the. Uh, it's the quite a sudden intrusion. Uh, intrusion. Well, hopefully, we'll be the polar the hopefully, the polar pattern of the mic is not yeah. accentuating <laughs> it too much. Um, and so, what you have is like, yeah, talking about the perils of shooting outside. Um, you have these. Uh, I've lost my train of thought. The silveriness of nitrate. Yeah, yeah so you've got there's there's you know suspend the 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 kind of uh, wash that is applied to the film stock is you know it's this nitrate suspended solution, and I wonder part of me wonders if that's what adds this kind of glimmer and gleam um, to mm. what you see. And so yeah, sorry when you see Rutaba's face at first, there's almost this like strange alienness to it. It's mm. supposed to be similar. We're supposed to recognise how beautiful Rita Hayworth is. Um, and this was the film that really made Rita Hayworth. Like this really, mm. really made her. Um, and there is a sense where she's extraordinarily beautiful, mm-hmm. but also kind of like godlike mm-hmm. and untouchable. All of the characters, and also his actual wife, his wifey, as it were, uh, who's the actress's name, I forget. Um, uh, I can easily look it up. But again, when you see her, you get this real sparkle in her eyes, this glossomer shimmer to her skin which you do not see in digital. You cannot reproduce that no. in digital. The experience is very holy. It's like looking at an icon. It's like looking, it's like mm. being before, you know, a Bellini altarpiece in a church. There's mm. something very transformative about it, um, which, yeah, is a, in effect a condition you just simply cannot reproduce um, with digital because digital is too too much of a sponge. Mm. It picks too much up. It, it's too precise. It doesn't, and it also yeah. doesn't have that kind of contrast and 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 uh, dynamic range. Yeah. What should we learn? This brings us on to the conclusion. Yeah. What should we learn from this film on film festival? Because you know, nitrate is basically over. I mean, when we're in our sixties, none of these prints will be. Um, it will. It will. Be, it won't be possible to see anything on nitrate because all of these prints would have degraded to the point where they're a, a, a kind of a, an unspeakable yeah, virus. People might transfer to other other nitrate. There doesn't seem to be any there. sign that anyone's like creating a nitrate safe cinema or like oh specifically for nitrate. Yeah, yeah. and no one's like transfer. Like no one's like no one who's shooting on film now is like making nitrate transfers it's too, of their films. It's, it's, it's too dangerous. It's too unstable. So it's um, basically a technology that's nearly completely extinct. Yeah, we're, we're seeing it on its last legs. I mean, So what do we learn technologically from seeing it? Is it even just like a complete novelty at this no, point? No, I, I would go back because I think that there's something very, you know, so nitrate for half of films, like sort of half-life of cinema, mm-hmm. right, was dominated by nitrate. This was the predominant mode of filmmaking up until the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, the BFI had a nitrate f- uh, fire mm-hmm. in the 60s, uh, oh, I wow. think 67 or 70 or something. So they've, they've had experience of having a nitrate fire before. Mm-hmm. It was relatively quickly put out. A lot of the legislation about uh, controlling nitrate stocks and moving to safety safety film happened at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Notoriously, because there's a bit of back- backstory here, but it's interesting. Um, there was a, a major fire in 1897 in Paris Bazaar where mm. like 126 people died because wow. um, funny. So when you read back, there was a screening uh, in this kind of uh, like a lot of the time, you know, at that time in the 1890s film was a novelty. It wasn't mm-hmm. shown as film wasn't really a thing. It was mm-hmm. like a kind of uh, fun diversion where the fun yeah, fair yeah. and there was this kind of medieval town or something that they built the Paris Bazaar and it was screening some, you know, whatever, some film about something like a tennis match or something. Um, and so people are gathered there amongst all these other diversions that mm-hmm. were on for the day. 
I imagine like a sort of man, a w- woman with a beard and a dwarf or something, and then maybe a bit of film, uh, which goes to show how far it's come. There's this moment where uh, they're in the projection booth and they're trying to change reels, mm-hmm. nitro reels, and so uh, the, the projectionists. Uh, it's kind of fumbling and he's trying to sort it out because it's quite dark in there. So absolutely fucking doofus next to him lights a match mm-hmm. to help him see. <laughs> and obviously, you know, the rest is history. A huge conflagration, 126 people die. This stuff burns at like 4,400 degrees. Because it provides its own oxygen. Yeah, and it will When it burns, it, it creates more oxygen to, than so the fire just accelerates. One of the accelerants of, yeah, fire is oxygen. Uh, and it burns the entire place down. 126 people die. 2,000 people, you know, suffer injuries from, you know, mm-hmm. smoke inhalation. And then after that, across America, France, there's just this, as cinemas expand and more and more built and mm-hmm. safety uh, protocols aren't properly watched, you get a spate of fires. And none are as mm-hmm. fatal as the, the bizarre Paris Bazaar fire. Um, but, you know, people are wounded. People are injured. There are panics. There's kind of moral mm-hmm. panics about film. There's a point where people are like, is film done because people mm-hmm. are scared about going into cinemas again. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we evaluate, you know, and obviously that didn't happen because legislation was passed in 1907 in the UK where, um, you know, certain safety protocols had to be watched and people began to develop safety film, which was at first acetate and then was always something else. And then it was acetate, which is, you know, a safe, it doesn't really burn um, form of, of film stock. Mm-hmm. And so things change, but it is so hard wired and baked into the the kind of early development of of film i would hope that people would kind of like find the means to preserve it you know bfi have a a facility in warwickshire where they store all of their film Mm -hmm. it's off-site and there's a very controlled process for how nitro film is handled which means it has Mm -hmm. to be warmed up for uh to room temperature for 24 hours and then processed and you know it's all these steps but again yeah will that you know can something like that survive? But I think that the, the experience of watching it on watching Nitro was so, and uh, you know, I mean, I love film like we both do. So of course we're going to get more out of it, but I feel like there's something there that someone who'd never thought about any, how a film is shot before, mm-hmm. which have like a ecstatic, almost euphoric, holy experience before that. It really did feel special. Mm. So yeah, I, I hope that will continue. I hope that there will be somewhere that will continue to preserve <laughs> And also, uh, I think the, f- the festival as a whole just obviously attuned everyone to the ex- the formal experience in a way that um, festivals that privilege content mm. or like strands that privilege the content over the form uh, don't. So it was just really nice to have an event that was like, yes, film is a medium and we're taking it seriously. But is, you know, what is the future of people shooting on film, do you think? Because of the costs, like just regular film, that's just like safety film and 16 mil, you know, because it's... I think it's kind of dumb, really. I wouldn't mm. do it. I don't do it. I don't shoot on film. It costs a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, I would be ha- I would be just almost as happy with like a, um, like a festival for stuff shot on iPhones. I just want people yeah. to pay some attention to like, <laughs> like how things are made. Um, oh, where's the DV? Fe- where's the yeah? yeah where's like the DV festival, festival for like stuff. Festival for stuff that um, is made on the smallest cameras possible. Like I don't know. Like I'm just interested. I'm interested in anything that talks about the construction of or stuff. Film, like yeah. there's, there's a festival, a slow film festival. You know, there are there are like ways of bringing this stuff into focus. So yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm personally yeah. I I don't use film to make my films. I can't really imagine. Even if I had a fairly big budget, I can't really imagine 
wanting to because you just it's just an extra thing uh, yeah i don't set, i don't think you, you should you should have to in the same way that you know there's a reason that uh impasto and gouache and oil paints kind of you know fall out of usage because they're expensive they're difficult there are other mediums to explore in the art hmm. world yeah, the, i think the, it's quite a good archiving format yeah it's a great you know. archiving format the, but the the culture of film went progressive people just adhere to uh, what we did at the beginning because mm. of nostalgic reasons you know the only way, way film is going to progress I'm not saying the solution to film is necessarily 3D and 4D but it is about what can be done with the medium that is mm. completely um, uh, common now mm -hmm. you know what is the standard medium of shooting because you know Mamoulian wasn't shooting on nitrate because nitrate was special. He was shooting on nitrate because that was just the film stock that you shot on. For him, that was a cutting edge film. Yeah. Um, and Stan Brackage was shooting on 16, 35 and 16 mil when his shit burnt or stolen, sorry. Um, you know, was shooting on film because that was a medium that was available and he could afford. Mm. Um, and the same goes for Alonso. Shooting, you know, so all, all these filmmakers are interesting. And Pedro Costa, I mean, people are making decisions. They're trying to shoot in a relatively modern way. And if people are using film, I think. Yeah, I mean, more force to them, but you know. Yeah, every so often, like a film like Bait comes along, which absolutely earns its um, as it strives. its celluloid um, form. But uh, yeah, I would say that film is increasingly like uh, a marginal. I think the fact that, the fact that you have to have a festival about like uh, about celluloid, mm. um, and the fact that all these people were kind of lining up to see films primarily because they were on film rather than necessarily because of the films themselves shows that it is it is a, a margin is now like solidly a marginal medium yeah because people won't have like a, a, a habitual everyday experience with it so one of the things that mark jenkins said in his film you know even though we panned it you know he said that uh, he had an early formative experience of watching a film projection in a village hall somewhere in cornwall when he was a kid uh, which I guess was quite normal in mm. whenever he was born, eighteen forty-seven. Then he tries to find the print in the National Archive. I mean, this is just bollocks. I mean, you saw a film like film is like cinema, whether it's digital or film, mm. is fantastic. That's what that's why we all have a podcast about it and love it and make it. Like yeah. it's not that you know, like just just that's just your nostalgia. That's just like. I I feel that way when I see like the 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 kind of seat the seating pattern the the moquette fabric on an old district line train you know like, <laughs> like the way he was talking about film was mm. just utter nostalgism it had nothing to do with the substance of it I, I appreciate he's ma managed to use film in a way that is evocative uh, and and as we said earlier like is appropriate to the subject matter sometimes um, but yeah this this feeling that is created for him by an experience with film. I don't really recognize that. Well, even when you take people like uh, Jonas Mikas, uh, you know, Mikas shot on, on Bolex for much of his career, but, you know, when DV formats became more common and when camcorder came on common, he shot on those because he didn't really, he wasn't wedded to Bolex. He wasn't, it was just what he could afford when he was, you know, a, a literal displaced person from Lithuania. It's true, but I am going to um, massively contra contradict myself and ooh. say that... Um, Mekas's films after he stopped using film yeah, just, they, are pretty dog they just look horrible they do look horrible and I yeah. think Mekas weirdly uh, and this gives some insight into the the sort of um, the funny quirk of like Jonas Mekas as an artist is like you know these films are not um, like he, his his motor his energy for documenting things didn't seem to kind of really recognise 
the the form the qualities of yeah film. I, d- I don't i don't think he like, yeah he had he exactly did. the same joy like going for breakfast going for brunch in 2004 with hansel Ricobris <laughs> and just like <laughs> fucking filming him like it, almost like it was the fucking news of the world scoop with the fake shake or yeah something. fake shake was very <laughs> fake shake that's the thing like, I, I don't like think he, he understood where how it, to use uh dv and digital in a way that he but maybe he didn't it realize like, that those images didn't have the same dynamism as like mm-hmm. walden that all the images yeah, I mean, in walden you can't and, compare and to walden as you can't compare to, to sketches yeah um, um which is fine but like yeah I, I think that i think that film i think that i think that you can shoot something fairly banal uh, on film and it looks kind of extraordinary that's why we should mistrust it maybe a little bit um whereas i think on digital you do have to work a bit harder to create that like those well, effects with light take, take it back to like pedro costa actually because pedro costa is someone who used dv in a way that i think to use that kind of poster paint and oil paint mm. comparison discovered a kind of oil painting within mm. um with digital film yeah. and you know often quite low quality digital film and i think you know that like i said at the very beginning of the episode there are so many ways you can push digital film to interesting you know it's more of a challenge to find the grain and the the tear and the rip and the imprecision in digital film and that's why it's quite exciting you know you look at filmmakers like Stom Sogo um, R.I.P. Uh, but he was shooting 16 mil on VHS right? yeah but he so was, he was finding it. a kind of yeah an interface between yeah. both he didn't always do that but mm-hmm. he'd use this re-photography approach which I find really insightful in my practice when mm-hmm. I make films which is re-photography but I'm doing re-photography of digital and digital but I think there's a lot of ways where you can um yeah you can push digital to its limits and you can discover all those things we like about you know um mark jenkins likes about film which is the grain and the buzz and the fuzz and the scratches you can discover those things in um in in digital they just don't they're not scratches they're not grain mm-hmm. they're something else they're pixelation they're um they're 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 um motion blur you know there are all these things that you can you can use to disarticulate kind of normative realistic habitual ways of seeing the world and i think that's the exciting thing about film so yeah that's the exciting thing about the film on film festival for us it was not so much film itself but form and that's why Mm. we command you to return to form (laughs) return to form can i tell you which is the title of our podcast like because i've been doing a lot of research so my favorite little anecdote about uh so the Royal Navy in 1947-1948 made made a structural film. Did you know this? No. So they made a film called, which is a film about the proper, because obviously the Royal Navy had a film unit mm-hmm. um, to train, educate, and and you know um, do ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they made a film called. Uh, I think it's. I think the actual title is like, this film is dangerous, mm-hmm. and it's nitrate. Mm-hmm. And it's a nitrate film about the dangers of handling nitrate. Oh, wow. So it's a film which. Uh, within its title is talking about the specific film itself mm. that is being screened and as a reminder it's almost like a structural film within the context of projection itself right. I've seen it it's on YouTube in a really ter- terrible rip um, very appropriate but yeah so the, <laughs> dangerously bad knew, quality who, yeah dangerously <laughs> bad quality so who knew it that the Royal Navy made a structural film um, makes sense I mean all mm. CCTV is in a sense structural film yeah alright bazaar <laughs> um, um, yeah. thank you for listening yeah, listeners um we uh we will we will we'll talk meet again we will meet again on our next <laughs> episode we have various things we want to discuss as usual yeah. um what's at the top of our list i you know i'm really i mean we had this little dalliance with uh I'm, I'm, i want to see what is there with leopold tori nelson mm-hmm. um i really do uh 
I, I, there are certain things I want to chase down. Um, Summer is an absolute desert in terms of decent films. All the art house stuff from Ken. Yes, yeah, so I think we know I need to look back. I think we know I need to look back at a kind of like, uh, you know, some forgotten mm-hmm. or or a period forgotten. Or if anyone's obviously got any suggestions about what we should look at, um, and we might bust out a classic, um, just a Bresson or something. Right? We have yeah. talked about doing um, Bresson. We have talked about doing Tarkovsky. You know, and also, God willing, um, our appearance on Tank TV. Uh, yeah. talking about Faithless by Liv, Liv Ullman, Ullman. Uh, will drop uh, which might have come out by the time this is released may, may well maybe not we, we, we sat down in their green screen studio and natted for a bit so you actually you'll get the um, for the true parasocial relationship you're yeah. going to get us uh, you see us you get to see us not just hear us admin reveal exactly yeah um, on that note good night <laughs>